Spencer, are you a real uh, mileage tracker? Do you add up all those miles that you ride every week? Fred, I've actually, this this year I've gotten into uh, Stravaing all of my commutes as uh-huh. well as my normal rides. So I definitely think I've been tracking miles far more than I have in years past. I just was kind of curious how many uh, miles I was commuting by bike every day. Well, if you add up all those miles and you get to 50 miles a week, Uh, Our good friends at Health IQ have a good deal for you. With Health IQ, you can get up to half a million dollars in life insurance coverage if you are a cyclist who rides up to 50 miles a week uh, because Health IQ is the life insurance company that works with healthy people, runners, cyclists, vegetarians, people like us who care about our bodies. Spencer, what can you say about Health IQ? That's right, Fred. Health IQ has been sponsoring this fellow news podcast for quite a while now. We love these guys. They provide a great service to active people like you and I. And all you have to do is go to healthiq.com slash velonews and you'll get a free quote on this life insurance. And it's, you know, it's worth your time to, to get a good deal on that life insurance because you never know. Well, thanks to Health IQ for sponsoring this week's podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. It is Tuesday. I am Fred Dreyer here in the basement of the Velo News World Headquarters in the podcast studio that is uh, it's just constantly evolving. We have a round table in here. We have some foam on the walls. I think next we're going to have – are we going to have fancy microphones, Spencer? Do we are, Do we get – do we have a budget for fancy microphones? <laughs> I don't think I'm the one that decides that, Fred. You're, you're the one in charge here. Mm, yeah. So maybe. We, maybe we'll bail on the covering the tour next year and then just get some microphones instead. Yeah, we're just going to be a podcast, no website, no magazine. That's sure to earn us millions of dollars. <laughs> Worked for a serial, right? Uh, we have a lot to talk about on this week's episode. We have a great interview with mountain biker Jeff Kabush, who won the Iceman Cometh mountain bike race on not a mountain bike. So disruptive. Yeah, he won it on a gravel bike. He is just throwing off-road racing, uh, just just upending it with his uh, tool choice. So we're going to check in with Jeff Kabush. We're also going to talk Giro d'Italia route because last week the Giro revealed its route for 2019. Uh, Spencer, Yumi, and Dane are going to break down the route and talk about why this is going to be an exciting Giro, or maybe it'll be a boring Giro. Hmm. We just don't really know. We'll have to talk about that later. But before that, we have some breaking news in the world of bike tech. That's right. Bike Tech, we have SRAM has released a 12-speed... Well, they haven't released well, it, that's right. They, they have not released it. Release. Spy photos out there. Yeah, the, we've seen this spike at uh, the Saitama Criterium in Japan. I think also, uh, Dan, you had a story about Wout Van Aert riding this bike in Cycle Cyclocross World Cups. Dan Cavallari in the house right now, our tech editor. Hi, guys. Yeah, Dan. So what's going on here? We, you know, over the last few years, we've seen the big drivetrain companies go from nine speed to 10 speed, 10 speed to 11 speed, now 11 speed up to 12 speeds. Uh, what, what's going on here? And what is the significance of the jump to 12? Well, uh, first and foremost, you know, let it be known that there are patents out there that exist for 14 speed drivetrains. So Ooh. God knows when this is all going to stop. Whoa. Uh, but th- this is sort of a big deal. Right now, the only other 12-speed road drivetrain we've seen released is Campagnolo. And so SRAM is uh, is basically competing with them now with this. But it's it's a pretty different drivetrain. Uh, and it, it opens up a lot of, of opportunities here. So 
first, I mean, just basically by looking at what, what the spy shots show, one of the big things, aside from the fact that it's 12 speed, is that there's a clutched rear derailleur, or at least there appears to be one. And that's pretty significant for a couple of reasons. But the big thing is uh, this means you can run a one-by drivetrain. Uh, the clutch rear derailleur accommodates the the extra slack in the chain so that uh, you don't have chain retention issues, you're not dropping chains. Um, that's one of the simpler functions, but there are other things. And that's really exciting for gravel as well. I, I personally have friends I know who ride ETAP componentry for their gravel bikes, and the current generation of ETAP doesn't have that clutch mechanism. And I've certainly seen them have some issues with their chains skipping around a little on a particularly rough section, dirt road, that sort of thing. You put a clutch on this, it's going to be, I, I'm definitely excited to see more applications of clutch rear derailleurs in the world of dropped curly bar road bikes. Certainly we've seen that already with Shimano. They've got the Ultegra mm -hmm. uh, clutch derailleur RX, I think is what it's called. Yep. But yeah. um, that's an exciting one for sure. Yeah, and also, I mean, we've already seen we've seen a spy shot of Jeremy Powers riding a 1X uh, ETAP drivetrain. So it is here. It is coming. Uh, this is nothing is official from SRAM. They have not said anything official from about this drivetrain. They gave us a no comment. Uh, but I'm heading to California in January, and presumably this is one of the things we'll see. Yeah, we're just going off of, you know, Cycling Tips did a really good story on this. James Wang had mm -hmm. a pretty in-depth story. So uh, based on the photos, based on what he's writing, that's yep. what we're talking about. A little speculative, but mm -hmm. I think we can feel fairly confident about it. And um, like you're saying, Dan, this whole approach to a 12-speed drivetrain, really different than Campagnolo. Yeah, so one of the things that, that uh, SRAM is doing is uh, they have a, 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 dr a driver instead of a free body. It's called the XD driver. On the mountain side, the XD driver uh, is basically unchanged in terms of width because that big massive chain ring, that 42 or whatever tooth chain ring. Can on the cassette, you mean? On the cassette, yeah. or excuse me. Yeah, I'm sorry. On the, uh, the cog on the cassette. Mm. That can actually, it's so big that you can actually cheat that inward because the bend of your spokes allows a little bit more room. Um, not so on a road drivetrain. So you have a smaller large cog. So you're looking about 28 teeth on, on this one that we've seen spy shots of is a 10, 1028. So SRAM has finally kind of mainstreamed their XDR drivetrain or excuse me, driver, which is wider. Now you don't have to get a new wheel. It's, it's backwards compatible. It's not, the spacing is not different in terms of your axle width. So you don't have to worry about any of that. Um, but to accommodate the 10 tooth, uh, cog, uh, and, and the wider range of, of gears, that's what, what SRAM has done. So it's an entirely new driver. Um, lots of, lots of proprietary stuff here, but I think it's, it's really to make things work as well as possible. Um, the other thing they did was, uh, it looks like SRAM is going with direct mount chain rings, which essentially saves you a few grams. So it's, that's not as glamorous, but it's kind of nice because it's easier to, to change out chain rings and it definitely saves you some, some, some weight. So, Dan, for the neophyte like me, whenever I see one of the big component manufacturers add another speed to its cassette, go from 10 to 11 or 11 to 12, you know, it's just like, oh, it's just easy. You just add another gear. What, what type of engineering, by and large, is needed? What, what goes into adding another speed to a drivetrain? It really sort of depends on the goal of that drivetrain. I mean, Campagnolo's goal was sort of to, to reduce the uh, the jumps between cogs. So the the jumps were smoother between cogs. Um, we haven't gotten a really close look at SRAM's uh, cassette, so we can't really talk specifically about what goals they had, whether it was to offer a wider uh, gear range to offer, you know, 
uh, a wider range of gear options or if it was to smooth out, you know, the jumps between gears. We don't know. Um, we haven't seen what the specific cogs are. Well, I mean, there is one thing, though, that I did notice, and that is that these chain rings that they're using for this drivetrain are all mostly smaller than what you're what you see on a standard road setup you know mm -hmm. i'm i'm seeing a photo in front of me right now with a 5037 mm -hmm. and um that's on a pro world tour bike and it's not very common to see world tour guys on a big chain ring that's that small they usually will run a 53 for their big chain ring mm -hmm. so that's interesting to me because that potentially means there's a a, a a narrower jump between your two chain rings up front which Presumably means better shifting. Um, I would hope so. Yeah. And also if you really, if you calculated out the gear inches, uh, between, you know, a, a compact, uh, chain ring or even a standard chain ring setup and like an 11 tooth cog in the rear versus this new, the new options that SRAM is offering and a 10 tooth cog, the rollout is actually pretty similar. So it's not as big of a deal as it seems to, to go to a big, a smaller, uh, front chain ring as, as, as long as the cog in the back is also getting smaller, it's all about rollout. So essentially you're, you're, you're compensating for one with the other. From an engineering perspective though, I mean, are they having to start over from scratch? I mean, everything gets re-engineered chains, uh, free hub bodies, or is this just, uh, you know, a, a simple matter of playing with ratios and going from there? Again, it, it sort of depends. I mean, clearly SRAM has a new chain here. Uh, you can you can see it from the photos. There's a flat side, and then there's the sort of you know the wavier side. I, I don't know what the function of that is yet. We'll have to get the skinny on that. But a lot of times, you know, when we went from nine speed to ten speed, the chain definitely got narrower, um, and there was it was a totally different construction of that chain to accommodate the wider range uh, of chain line that you would encounter. So you had to strengthen that chain. Um, when when SRAM went from ten to eleven speed. Uh, I don't think the width changed, but the construction of the chain did change so that it could be, uh, stronger in, in cross train, cross chaining situations, things like that. Um, I'd have to double check on that to make sure, but my, my understanding is that I don't think the width specifically changed, but the construction does change. So we're not talking about just slapping on a bigger cassette and calling it good. There's a lot of considerations that go into this from chain line to construction of the chain to, you know, the, the, even the construction of the derailleur, uh, you know, like we said, we're talking about a, a clutched rear derailleur. I mean, that's a big advance. So it sounds like a few riders have already been seen, uh, riding this Nils Pollitt was using it at Saitama. Uh, it sounds like Walt Van Aert has been, uh, riding this drivetrain in some cyclocross races. So a view of things to come. Well, Dan, you will have the skinny on this, no doubt, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned to velonews.com. Thanks for stopping by and educating us on everything 12-speed related. This one goes to 12. Hmm. It's much, much better shifting. <laughs> So with 12-speed derailers, with Tour de France routes, with all sorts of news going on, for me, it was it was kind of easy to gloss over some of the biggest news that happened within the last week, which was that the Giro d'Italia released its route for 2019. And I really don't know why the Giro 
piggybacks on the tours route announcement and does it just a few days later. To me, it seems like it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Well, plus they did it on Halloween. So, I mean, you yeah, know, we're all busy go. getting our costumes ready, mm, candy. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good day for yeah, it. Buzzing around on candy. So uh, we have Dane Cash here. Hello, Dane. Hey, Fred. Dane, when you saw this Giro d'Italia route, um, we have lots. We have a number of summit finishes. We have three time trials. We have a very backloaded route. Uh, what were some things that came to mind. What did you think of this Giro route? Well, when you first look at it, you see bookending time trials. You see three total time trials, and you think, well, compared to the tour, this looks like a pretty time trial or friendly route. But then if you look at them a little more closely, I think you realize that they're they're kind of hilly time trials. The, the time trial distance isn't that great. I think overall, this is still a pretty climber-friendly Giro d'Italia. I think the time trials are going to make a difference, but... Uh, there's some really cool climbing stages on tap, particularly in the second and third week. As usual, those are usually when the when the great climbing stages are. So there's going to be a, a pretty decisive time trial stage nine, but then some of the high mountain stages to come. Uh, stage 14 is really cool. takes us uh, all the way up towards Mont Blanc. Stage 15 is sort of like a, like a Il Lombardia redux. You get to go on a lot of those really cool climbs, the Gesalo, the Sormano, the Civiglio, the San Fermo della Battaglia. These are all climbs you see in uh, Tour of Lombardy. And then there's just a really, really challenging final week with uh, with a stage that includes a visit to the Gavia, a visit to the Mortarolo. I mean, that's the kind of stage I think everybody's going to be really excited to watch here at the Giro d'Italia. So a lot of climber-friendly days, even with a couple more time trials than the Tour de France. Yeah, that stage with the Gavia and the Mortirolo is one of those profiles that you look at and um, makes you think, glad it's not me, mm. because that looks really painful. The profile for the Mortirolo especially is just, it's like a tooth. It's a fang sticking up. Very steep. Um, I'm with you, Dane. I think that, you know, this is a race that caters to climbers, but I, w- I want to backpedal a little bit because we do have these three time trials, and I've been hearing some discussions saying, yeah, but they're uphill time trials. There are these big climbs in them, so they're going to really favor the climbers. And to a certain degree, I do agree with that, but isn't what makes a great time trialist the ability to gauge one's effort, be it flat, be it uphill, be it whatever, uh, it, it's not just a matter of like being able to climb really well or ride really strongly on flat grounds, but it's having that knowledge of gauging the effort to get the most speed on the course, no matter if it's a hilly course or a flat one. Yeah, you're right. And these are definitely very tactical time trials. So the race opens up with a short TT, eight kilometer TT. The first, uh, let's call it two thirds of that are flat. And then there's a hill at the end. Sort of the same story with that stage nine time trial, the longer one, where, yeah, I think if you are bad at gauging your efforts, if you are rolling over those 20 flat kilometers at a really high pace, you could see some guys really blow up there on the steep finale, the, the final third of that uh, stage nine, which takes place in San Marino, by the way. Nice little micro-state visit at the Giro d'Italia. Always good to get those in there. So obscure. Yeah. So I'm looking at the distances for these Giro stages, 200K, 233K, 206K. 100. Guys, looks like the Giro just didn't get the memo of the like the cool hip hipster thing to do which is to have these short punchy stages i i guess i am seeing 131 kilometers yeah there is that stage one 14 yeah There's that, that looks climbing. like a cool day to me i would say that's about as short as it gets for the giro and mountain stages it's yeah. kind of like dipping its toe into the the warm water of short 
chaotic mountain stages. And I think around 130 kilometers is a nice distance for this type of stage that does encourage some attacking. I, you know, if you get closer to 100 kilometers, it starts to turn into a little more of a gimmicky type stage, I feel. I mean, there are days when that's worked out really nicely, but then there's other days like the Tours stage this past year that was whatever, 60, 70 kilometers. How, how long was that stage? 65K. So, yeah, that was, I mean, I think that kind of fell a little flat and it, I think everyone was maybe just a little nervous of that final climb, so it didn't didn't deliver. And the fact that it was so short, I I mean, I guess it's better not to have to sit around and wait for a finish if, if you can get it over with and get right down to business. I don't know what you're talking about. They had a starting grid. And a starting grid. Innovative. Uh, yeah. So innovative. So innovative. It, it didn't really do much. I, I liked that stage. I thought it was uh, good drama watching Roman Bardet get dropped so hard and uh, Garrett Thomas have to, having to attack guys like Tom Dumoulin. Chris Froome got dropped. But I hear you. You know, the, the Giro to me seems like it's staying traditional with its long crushing stages. Although I feel like in Jiri past, we've seen some type of decisive uphill finish within the first week. And this year we don't see our true summit, our first true summit finish until stage 13. So, Dane, what, how do we feel like that is going to impact the dynamic of the race? Well, I think it's going to be all about the time trialists in the beginning of the race because you have the opening TT and the stage 9 TT before you get that really hard mountain stage or, or stretch of mountain stages. So it's, I think it's going to be the kind of Giro where we're talking about one or two riders a lot in the first 10 or 11 days, and we might be talking about a whole different group of riders after that. So I guess just keep an eye on who we're talking about and, you know, whether they actually have the climbing chops because we could see a real big re re you know shuffling of the GC. I'll be honest, I don't like this Giro route. I think this is kind of a stupid way to do it because you have to wait all the way until, you know, past the halfway point before you actually see any real GC action. And yes, the time trials will be a factor. And sure, you have to perform in those to be a GC rider. But oh my gosh, some of these stages we're looking at, these long flat stages, I'm thinking like 10 and 11 especially, just look absolute garbage as far as from a, from a fan's perspective. I mean, why do you even tune in for days like that when it's pan flat? 200 kilometers it's just i don't the giro always has at least one of those but i feel like this year they kind of accidentally reached into their bin and grabbed more than they meant to and, and now they can't put them back because they already put their hands on them to me it feels like this giro is trying to accomplish the exact opposite of what the 2018 giro did if the 2018 giro gave punchy climbers like simon yates a bit of a head start by allowing them to you know, eke out these small time advantages with punchy uphill finishes through the first two weeks and then force Simon Yates to try and hold on against, you know, the third week um, specialist guys like Chris Froome and Tom Dumoulin. Um, I think that this one is giving the time trialists and the, you know, uh, the, the Grand Tour bona, bona fides a chance to get a little early start. So it's sort of like let the time trialists get their early start and then let the climbers like Yates chip away at them in the third week of the tour. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, there's a few of these stages in the first week that do have slight uphill finishes. They've got a little, little bit of punchy finishes. I'm thinking like, I think like yeah, maybe stage six and seven kind of have a bit of a kicker in the end there. I don't know if that's really going to detonate the field or anything like that, though. It looks more like a invitation to Peter Sagan. Yeah, I think... 
outside of the GC conversation, this is a, a really cool route for guys like Sagan or Gilbert or maybe even Dan Martin, guys who do really well in those punchy finishes because there's quite a few short ones that aren't going to have a big GC impact uh, in the first 10 or 11 days that I think, yeah, Peter Sagan's going to love this Giro d'Italia route. If he, if he, if he decides if to go. He's he never does. raced the Giro. I mean, should he race the Giro? It seems like it's kind of come about time. And if you're a, a rider like Sagan, a sprinter, why not? I mean, it's not like a GC guy where if you do the Giro, you're totally gassed for the Tour de France. You see all the time guys do the Giro, and then they're okay at the Tour de France. And I think Peter Sagan could be one of those guys. He's got the endurance. Guys, Peter Sagan should absolutely not race the Giro to tell you. If he raises the Giro, he can't come to the Tour of California. One of mm. our only opportunities to have some uh, uh, you know, fun quotes from Peter Sagan on home soil. Plus, it's always baked into his, like, North American stint pre-tour where he goes to California, then he goes, hangs out in Utah, rides mountain bikes, true. and uh, builds to the tour. So, I, you know, as much as I like this route for Peter Sagan, come on, buddy, you got to come to the States. Yeah, that's a good point. And he does like California, no question there. Well, what, what riders do we think benefit from this Giro? Um, are, you know, are we... Uh, confident enough in our Giro takes to say this is a Giro for X rider. I mean, I think this is a Giro for the traditional Grand Tour types, and unfortunately, I think a lot of them are going to skip it. This looks like a great Giro for Chris Froome. I think if Chris Froome wanted to defend his title, it's a really nice race for him. Big climbs, there are time trials. Ditto for Gary and Thomas, and ditto for Tom Dumoulin. I mean, these guys are going to thrive. Are you on just going to name all of them, Dane? Well, you're, just, you're just going to name all of them and I take them all away from not, us? I think it's not, Spencer, a great ride for a guy like Naira Quintana. There are some time well, trials. Naira Quintana is never going to win another Grand Ooh, Tour. Ooh, so spicy takes. That. Yeah. No. I, I think the, the climbers and time trials, the more balanced guys, are going to like this better. So you look at the season globally, and in my mind, Chris Froome has to go to the Tour. He has to win the Tour. He, you know, he came up short last year. He needs that fifth win. He wants to be part of that club. So he's going to do that. Garen Thomas, who knows? Maybe he'll go to the Giro, but Garen Thomas is never going to win another Grand Tour also. And so that means Tom Dumoulin, I think he's got to do the Giro because the Tour is Definitely not well suited for Tom Dumoulin. He loves the Giro. He's won it before. He's going to go to the Giro, and I think he is the guy who potentially wins it in large part due to these time trials, but also because it's a slow burner. And by the time they reach the mountains, people will be a little more fatigued, and he'll be able to just play a little more of the defense role and not have to worry about these explosive attacks from fresh riders. If we see the same trend in 2019 that we saw in 2018, which was all of the experienced guys going to the Tour de France, though, do we see this as a potential for, I don't know, a tier below riders like someone on, you know, not quite at the peak of their powers anymore, maybe a Vincenzo Nibali, uh, maybe riders on their way up, Simon Yates. Do we see this as a playground for sort of the um, Class B Grand Tour contenders? I think absolutely. I think Vincenzo Nibali is going to really like this route. There's a... A number of descents in there as well. We didn't talk about that a lot, but he's obviously very good at that. He's good at everything. This is definitely a route for him. And it's the Giro. I think it is the Grand Tour for young up-and-comers slash Italian riders. And uh, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of young up-and-comers there that are going to want to do the Giro in place of the Tour. I mean, Simon Yates is... Now that he's won a a Grand Tour, is he really going to want to go to the the Giro? I think he's going to want to go to the Tour de France. Steven Kreuzweg. Mm, that's a guy. Mm, that's a good guy for this good race. Good third week guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Except that one time. Except mm, for that one time. Yeah. Bad, Ouch. bad third week. Uh, you know, it's been tough to do the Kremlinology out of Team Sky uh, about Froome and Thomas. 
and you know, in recent weeks, they've given some quotes that, and they've been very opaque about their decisions in 2019. But if we were to call it right now, what, what do you think Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas's uh, racing schedules look like for 2019 in regards to the Giro or the Tour? Well, I already called my shot. For me, Froome has got to do the Tour. He's got to win the Tour. No question about it. Garrett Thomas, I don't know. Maybe he goes to the Giro. Maybe he tries to win the Giro. He said... I think in the um, interview from last week with The Guardian, uh, which was related to the release of his new book, uh, something to the effect of, I love the Giro, I'd, I'd love to go back and give it a try, or something like that. But he'll probably just crash into a motorcycle again or something like that. Oof, spicy taste. You know, that's what happened last time. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I totally agree about Froome and the Tour de France. I don't know that Thomas is really going to want to do the Giro. He's coming off a Tour de France win, and that's a step down. I mean, it's a great race. We all love to watch it, but the Giro is not the Tour. Garen Thomas is the reigning Tour winner. The only way he goes to the Giro is if Sky makes him go to the Giro because I think he wants to go to the Tour. I see Thomas is going to the Tour as well. I think there might be a little, I don't know, call it a hunch. Room Giro and Tour. Hmm. Wants to do it again. Interesting. Oh. So, he came so close. Yeah. He came so close. I could see him seeing it as the ultimate challenge, as the uh, Mount Everest, or the K2 of cycling that he wants to scale. But which is closer, winning the Giro and getting third in the Tour, or getting second in the Giro and second in the Tour? Uh, you just broke my brain. I don't well, know. Ask Tom Dumoulin, I guess. Yeah, that's He's my, the guy. That's my point. I think that the the time frame between the end of the Giro and the start of the Tour is way too short this year. Oh, I don't sure. think I don't think it's realistic for any rider, even Chris Froome and his marginal gains and whatever all he's doing to get fast. I don't think that's going to work for him. I think he's going to do it. I think he is going to take the knowledge he gleaned from 2018 and say, you know what? I think I could do it just a little bit better. I know exactly where I could get those Oh, he's real keen. Did he give it a shot again, Ace? Well, you know the Giro would love that because without that, I I don't know who they're going to get. Obviously, Vincenzo Nibu is a big name. People are very excited about him. But without without Froome or Thomas, oh, man, I don't know uh, if the Giro start list is going to be quite up to snuff. No, which means it'll actually be an exciting, uh, compelling race. Well, that's the uh, Giro to tell you 2019. We're obviously going to continue to report on the Giro, the Tour, which riders are going to do which race, which stages we think are going to be compelling, et cetera, et cetera. Guys, before we get out of here, we need to hear from Jeff Kabush, the man who won a mountain bike race on a gravel bike. Very strange. That's right, Fred. I was keeping an eye on my Instagram over the weekend, and I, I did, you know, I was just following the action from afar because uh, the uh, the famous... Um, Iceman Cometh mountain bike race was on Sunday and I, I kind of, I knew that Jeff Kabush was going to ride his gravel bike at this race, his open up and, uh, sure enough goes on and wins the race. Had to give him a call earlier this week, find out more about it, find out why he did this, how it worked, whether it was actually even an advantage or not. I mean, it's, it's a bold move The the Iceman Cometh is a huge, huge race, really important for cross country mountain bike racers, tons of fans, good money. And Jeff Kabush had won it two times prior. So, yeah, he was he was playing with fire a little to give it a shot on this gravel bike. But I think it uh, it paid off for him. And it's a, it's a great story to boot. All right, Jeff Kabush, welcome to the Velo News Podcast. And congratulations on your third Iceman Cometh mountain bike race win. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah, it was a really, really fun weekend for me. 
So Iceman Cometh is this legendary mountain bike race held every year in Michigan. Give us the basic summary of what it's all about and why it's so special. Yeah, Iceman's Cometh is kind of a special one. It's kind of the end of the year. You kind of never know what you're going to get. But yeah, it's been around forever. Started out as a small event and it's grown, grown into one of the biggest participation events for sure. And uh, they really take care of us as athletes, put up an awesome prize purse. It's a point-to-point about 48k or 30 miles and it's always kind of a, a tactical race kind of hard to read and uh i definitely one that it's it's fun to stay motivated and uh have a chance at, at duking it out there and so the big story this year is that you won the Iceman on a gravel bike basically it's uh it's your open upper is that right you have the upper model is that right i have the uh yeah the open up i actually have yeah collaboration. oh you don't even yeah, have con- the fancy one jeez no, well, uh, yeah, Conroy, uh, Chris Conroy from Yeti and Andy Kessler knew each other from back in the day, and so they did a special collaboration before uh, last fall, actually. So they, I got a Yeti Turk-colored Open Up, which might confuse people, but yeah, it's an Open Up, and it's something, uh, yeah, pretty excited. I got some cool bikes this year, and it has the option to run the 27 by 2.1 mountain bike tires, and so uh, racing it in a mountain bike race is something that I've kind of wanted to do for a while. I kind of thought about it, doing it at Carson City off-road, but didn't quite get it together. And uh, a little nervous about uh, running it this weekend, but uh, yeah, it was perfect conditions and pretty psyched how it all worked out. So why were you nervous about running a drop bar bike at this uh, <clears throat> race where you usually would be on your, your 29er hardtail mountain bike with normal flat bars and everything? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I was just trying to, you know, think through the course and how technical it was. It was obviously going to be an advantage at, on some sections, but um, just depending on the conditions and how well suited a bike like that would work. And so, you know, not quite sure uh, how, you know, the advantage would be. But, uh, man, when I got there and rode the second half of the course, it was, it was really buff this year, and I could really kind of take advantage of the, the lightweight and speed out there. So the biggest advantage then you'd say is the lightweight. Are there any other advantages of riding a gravel bike versus a mountain bike in this type of race? Yeah, I mean, well, just having the drop bars, it's almost like being an aero tuck on the, the mountain bike. Um, so we, it's, it's a really kind of high average speed, I think over 30K an hour. So it's a bit more like a, a road race, uh, especially near the end, uh, kind of attacked and got away with Alexi Vermeulen and, you know, we're in a little breakaway and it, you know, it made it easier to, to roll at speed as we kind of snuck away near the end. So then how did you make your winning move on him? And by the way, Alexi Vermeulen is a roadie, uh, by trade, or at least I can't remember. Is he still on a pro road team now? He's gone through uh, a few injuries. So yeah, I think he was on BMC and, uh, maybe another team, but he's kind of been, been coming back, but yeah, obviously really talented and, uh, stu- super strong. Kid, so I knew he he was uh, definitely had some strength, and knew once we got away, probably with about 10k to go, that if we we rolled together, we had a really good chance of staying away. And uh, kind of the race always finishes in um, the Timber Ridge kind of campground, uh, weaves around through the finish for all the the, the crowds there. And um, I just kind of made my move with a couple k to go to get to the front, and uh, I was able to just kind of stretch it out through the the winding finish and. And up the final hill to the finish line. So really, really cool crowd and way, cool way to finish off the race there. 
Yeah, I'm sure it's, uh, I've always heard about the crowd and I've always heard about the atmosphere. I've never been myself. I'd like to go one of these years. Um, back to the, back to the gear a little more for a sec, Jeff, the, the big thing I wonder is, you know, you told, you said that this bike will fit a 27.5 wheel, uh, with a mountain bike tire. And that's of course a smaller diameter than 29er and pretty much across the board XC racers riding 29ers these days. How much of that was a concern in terms of rolling speed? You know, were you worried that guys are going to be rolling out on you because they had bigger wheels on this high speed, wide open course? Not too, not too much. I mean, um, yeah, it's not, not as rough. So there's not as much, you know, bumps to roll over. It's pretty smooth, sandy terrain. But the other big, big advantage for me is I had a much taller gear than a lot of guys. I was running the 46, uh, yeah, 4634 by 1132. So, uh, I was able to just keep it in the big rig uh, the whole day. So with the 46, I could, when we were, you know, really cruising at high speed, I had a, a tall gear, uh, a little bit more efficient. Um, but yeah, just carrying carrying the speed with the the bigger gear and lighter bike and all the little hills, I think added up and was able to save a little energy towards the end. When you first came up with this plan to ride your your gravel bike at Iceman, what what was realistically your expectation of a result? Well, I wouldn't have wouldn't have done it if I didn't think I had a chance to win. Um, I was home here in in Squamish where I'm right now, and you know I was kind of on the fence trying to decide, and took it out for a ride on the actually the the mountain bike trails here in Squamish, and I was surprised how well it handled, and how how fast it it felt on uh, cruising around some of the XC trails here. So after after doing that ride here, I felt pretty confident that it was going to be a pretty good fit, and it was just going to come down to figuring out the the tactics and the, the competition, the guys who are going to be out there. Having ridden some of the so-called XC trails in British Columbia, I find that quite insane <laughs> to think that you were out there riding a rigid gravel bike with drop bars on these rocky, rooty, muddy, gnarly mountain bike trails you have out there. Have you, have you, cra- have you crashed on this bike yet, trying to, trying to take it off-road like that? No, I mean, I didn't, uh, I obviously didn't do any of the, the really tough trails here, but it's amazing. Yeah. Like any of the, the kind of technical stuff isn't too bad climbing at all. It's more just if it's like really rocky and lumpy, you obviously can't, can't carry as much speed riding full rigid, but, uh, yeah. the Iceman Cometh course is definitely much smoother and definitely has a few sections of single track, but enough, uh, you just kind of get down on the drops and you have your, your arms just soak up, um, all the bumps and, uh, not a big, big disadvantage. Uh, I mean, I grew up, grew up riding rigid mountain bikes up here. And so this is the opens quite an advance from the first rigid bike I, oh, I started riding on. Uh, definitely not has a draw bar, but, uh, no, it's still like, I mean, yeah, super capable off road. And I mean, obviously without the suspension, can't, can't roll through the, the lumpy stuff as well, but it's, I mean, it's just like riding a gravel bike, a cross bike. It was a lot of fun kind of taking it uh, off-road kind of out, or, out of its environment so i don't know even know what to call this bike but uh yeah it's my road cross gravel uh adventure bike ice man bike <laughs> yeah man you're dating yourself you uh grew up riding rigid mountain bikes oh boy um <laughs> did, did, so uh were there any moments during the race when you were like oh man maybe this was a bad idea not really i mean um the uh it felt calm. It's usually a big group out there, you know, 2025. 20, so it's really hard to break it up. And I think, uh, some of the guys were early on in the race thought I might be, you know, at a bit of a disadvantage in the single track and they were really pushing it. And it was, 
the line was getting a little stretched out, but you know, I felt comfortable and control and knew there'd be lots of sections where I could roll, roll back on and, uh, get in the group. And I knew once we got to halfway, um, there's kind of feed zone with about 18 K to go. And from there it's a pretty smooth run in. So, um, once we got, uh, after riding in Squamish, I knew I could handle the, the single track there. So it's just a matter of, of tactics, but, uh, uh, it was a lot of fun, even in the twisty single track, having the, the skinnier drop bars was actually kind of nice. Kind of, you could really lean into the corners and tight trees a little nicer. What kind of tire pressure were you running to make up for the lack of suspension? Uh, I was running 2021. Okay. I was running the uh, Pretty- you know, Maxxis Aspens, mm-hmm. kind of 210. California, I just had, nice. Yeah. I just had, <laughs> well, I had the... Uh, Dumb and dumber joke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had exo tires on which i probably didn't need but that's just the the tires i had thrown on there uh from this summer and uh they're just a nice rolling tire yeah the exo uh casing extra casing protection um did you uh did you hear any good hackles out there where anyone has anyone given you a little little grief for riding the drop bar bike no i mean it's uh people ride all kinds of bikes yeah. they're fat bikes and uh crowd bikes is quite quite an interesting crowd but yeah people were in general pretty pretty psyched to see me out there on a different bike and i think uh the best finish before on the drop bar bike uh someone said was 27th so it was uh it was pretty cool to take the the first first win on a drop bar bike out there yeah definitely would, would you recommend it to anyone out there if that's all they have just a gravel gravel bike would, would you recommend them trying a mountain bike race on one I think it's a terrible idea. No one should ever race <laughs> one out there. <laughs> yeah. That way you... None of the other guys, none of the other guys should try. It definitely <laughs> doesn't work. I don't know how I got away with it. Yeah. It's just <laughs> sheer luck. Um, so next up, Jeff, you're take. I think you're, you're probably taking the same bike to do uh Canadian cross nationals. Is that right? Yeah. Switching the wheels and, uh, heading out to Canadian cross nets this week, uh, right. which should be, should be fun. See how it handles that. Any other mountain bike races that we might see you show up on with this uh, drop bar machine? Well, you never know. I got some ideas. Um, but yeah, that's part of the other story. I wasn't sure on the legality of it because the UCI actually bans, bans the drop bars oh. at UCI events, which I think is a little silly. I think it's just an excuse for bad bad courses. But USA Cycling um, does does not have a problem at, at mountain bike races as long as they're not UCI inscripted. So um, you never know where I might show up on drop bars again. All right. Well, you better give Velo News a scoop on that one next time, Jeff. I don't want to have to hear about this on Instagram next time. <laughs> I got a few plans. So keep right. your eyes peeled. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Jeff, and uh, congratulations and good luck at Canadian Cross Nationals. guys before we get out of here we got a little uh, off the front off the back yeah yeah people are shaking their heads yeah. yes uh okay dane what's off the front what's off the back uh, off the front poo's grandson you may recall from a recent podcast episode we discussed raymond poulador affectionately nicknamed poo he's a tour de france uh, staple former stage winner and uh, just a great all-around rider there his grandson matthew vanderpool won the european cyclocross championships nobody's surprised he's been rocking it this season he's way off the front good bloodlines uh, good rider all around obviously so hooray for poo poo's grandson 
Way to make cross boring to watch, Matthew yeah, Vanderpoel, because right. yeah. you always win it. That's you totally, always solo off the front to win. That's totally his fault that yeah. cross is boring, too. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> off the back, I'm going to go with uh, third time's the charm for doping cases. Oh. Ooh, ooh not great. Borgos BH, the Spanish team, a team that, uh, well, some people were excited about this year. They've had yet another doping positive. I believe it's their third in uh, the calendar year. This time it's uh, Ibai Salas, uh, confirmed anti-doping violation, not great, and they've had three since December of last year. That's quite a few. That's about three too many. So, yeah. Don't they get, like, suspended by the that, UCI that or something, something like that? That is something that the UCI can, uh, yeah, now look into suspending that team. So off the back, Borgos BH. Yeah. Not great. Maybe not do that. Uh, let's see. For me, I'm actually, you know what, Dane? I'm going to go third time's the charm for off the front mm. because not only did Jeff Kabush win his third Iceman Cometh, like we mentioned going into that interview, but also Chloe Woodruff, the Stan's Pivot No Tubes team, she won her third Iceman as well on Sunday. Uh, big result for her. And um, like I said, that's a, that's a real important race for the top cross-country riders. Now, off the back for me would be uh, ancient history because is <laughs> poor Alejandro Valverde. He is not going to make it through this season as a world champion, I don't think. He's getting so annoyed with people asking him about his past in Operation Puerto, and he had some comments over the weekend where he just he's just on the defensive all the time. And uh, people are going to keep asking him about this, and it's just not going to be super fun for him to go to all the races in this world champion's jersey and have to keep answering these questions. So maybe he should start talking a little more. Yeah, maybe he should release a statement saying, Operation Puerto? Question mark. <laughs> Question mark in front. Upside Ooh, yeah. down. Yeah, and you got to do it in front because it's yeah. Spanish. Yeah. Nice. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Uh, all right. Off the front for me is I have first timers, first time champions at the Pan American Cyclocross Championships in Curtis White and Magali Rochette. In fact, Magali Rochette, the first Canadian winner of the Pan Ams and the first non-Katie Compton mm. female winner <laughs> wow. of the Pan Am Champs because Katie Compton actually predates the Pan Am Champs. So congrats to Magalie Rochette. She had a hard-fought battle with Ellen Noble. On home turf up on in Canada. Turf, yeah. yeah, cool to see that. Came out in front. Um, off the back, oh, man, what what a, what don't we have off the back? We have Wigo takes. Oh, mm, definitely off Wigo yeah. takes. Uh, Bradley Wiggins in his book uh, has been throwing the hot takes around and – David Lapartien, head of the UCI, not too happy about it. He gave an interview this past week and said that Wigo has always said some strange things. <laughs> when I saw what Wigo said about Lance Armstrong, I thought it was unbelievable because basically Wiggins had said that uh, Lance Armstrong was the perfect Tour de France rider um, mm. and, and Lapartien is you know, taking issue with that. I guess Lepartian wasn't impressed that uh, Lance Armstrong finished La Ruta de las Conquistadores uh, over the weekend. Did he finish? Yeah. yeah he, wow. He's he's a La Ruta finisher. I Big, am. Biggest achievement in a cycling career, I bet. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, maybe not quite. It's yeah. up there. Yeah, it's, it's good, though. Uh, anyway, Lepartian would probably have some hot takes about Lance's La Ruta finish. Um, I think we would, too. Uh, anyway... <laughs> We love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The VeloNews podcast is produced by VeloNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. 
thoughts and opinions expressed in the Villainous Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. <laughs>